The following program is brought to you by Total Theater Online. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff or management of WGBB. You're listening to the station that serves your community, 1240 WGBB. And now it's time for Dave's Gone By with David Lefkowitz. There goes the neighborhood. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dave's Gone By. 90 minutes of comedy, music, and talk radio brought to you every week by Total Theater with help from our sponsors, the Tondora Grill and Hewlett Minuteman Press. In case you haven't glanced down at your radio dial, you're listening to us on AM 1240 WGBB with a signal coming from Freeport, or perhaps you're listening on the web at am1240wgbb.com. Either way, welcome to the 70th episode of Dave's Gone By. I'm still trying to wrap my brain around that. Roughly half the shows I've done, especially when the show began late night, were an hour long. Well, since this new season, we've expanded to 90 minutes, which means this program has come close to, or surpassed, a hundred total hours on the air. And to think, radio actually existed before Dave's gone by. I mean, it wasn't what we have now. Go back to 1998, even as late as 2001, to listen to the radio, you had to hold a pair of pliers up to the sun and wait for the exact moment when gamma ray number 843,614 bounced off the lower leg of the pliers and it had to hit the local water silo at just the right convex angle and then careen off the Hudson River just so you could you know, get old man Mosley's hog reports. I remember... The first time stereo came to radio, way back in early 2002. You know, people no longer had to walk around holding two transistors, one next to each ear, with at least one foot wearing a rubber boot and having to rotate every few minutes in order to shake off excess static electricity. Ah, yes, my friends, the Pleistocene era of radio. Everything prior to October 2002 was BDGB before Dave's gone by. In the really early days, the 1980s, there was no such thing as broadcasters. People found the job too risky. Stations used to go into cemeteries at night and dig up dead bodies. Then they would insert tiny amplifiers into their voice boxes and use a software program to synchronize their throats, uvulas, and larynxes into autonomic reflexes that sounded like human speech. It was surprisingly successful, though from the tone and quality of the voice, you could tell that corpses were being used rather than actual employees. I hope this doesn't shock anyone, but think about it. Wolfman Jack, Don Imus, Scott Muni, would they sound like that if they were really alive? I remember the first radio advertisement happened back in July 2002, just a few weeks before I went on the air. It was for Cragen's Lye and Biscuit Soap, a soap product that would not only clean your skin, but hold its shape when you dipped it in milk. And I remember the first radio lawsuits in August 2002, when 4,000 listeners filed a class action against the Cragen Company, something about emergency tracheotomies. I remember the first time a broadcaster, a dead broadcaster, remember, got in trouble on the air. It was winter, 2001, more than a foot of snow on the ground, and Ziggy the Zip 
was doing the afternoon shift on WM. Radio stations didn't have four letters back then, it was just two. And Ziggy was a very popular presence on WM. He used to show up at county fairs and baking contests and abortion clinics and hand out free bumper stickers reading, Zip It. But one day, old Ziggy got a little carried away and made a very nasty joke about the president. Not President Bush, President Martin Van Buren, who just happened to be a distant relative of the chairman of the FCC. Well, magically, tragically, that night, Ziggy was off the air. Right in the middle of the broadcast, he didn't even have the chance to do his usual sign-off. Good night, friends, and may you always have a Zig in your zag. Uh, made no sense at all, but people loved it. But he was out of there. One thoughtless jest about Martin Van Buren's sideburns and the FCC fined the station $8,000, which was more than three times Ziggy the Zip's annual salary. Two weeks later, he was on unemployment. Three weeks later, he was on welfare. He was last seen wandering around the Wisconsin Amtrak depot, mumbling the words, Zip it. Zip it to anyone who'd listen. Radio is an ugly business, but it's gotten just a little bit prettier since Dave's gone by, took to the airwaves in fall 2002. Since then, we've been filling your lives with smart talk, silly talk, special talk, and music. If you've never heard the show before, you are in luck, because we're doing one right now. If you're unfamiliar with radio, don't be nervous. I know it can be kind of confusing. You don't have to hold the pliers anymore. You don't have to wear special clothing, except the goggles. And even those are UV optional now. All you have to do is sit there, or stand there, or jog there, the words and the sounds and the musical notes will come out of the specially designed radio box and travel directly into the holes in your ears. You don't have to do anything. But the more you do, the less safe you are, because you're more likely to be distracted, say if you're operating a laparoscope or a bone saw. Should I make a humorous quip or a, quip or a brilliant witticism? Unlikely, I realize, but still, should you burst out laughing during a procedure that requires these fine instruments, you might find yourself in a similar position to Ziggy the Zip. So, radio listening does still require some precautions, some safety measures. That's why we rate this program DGB-13. We say it's the Dave's Gone By equivalent of PG-13, just our way of warning parents that, hey... There's radio around, and if your kids are playing with their laparoscopes or not wearing their goggles or eustachia chains, someone could get hurt. As for the content of this program, well, nothing too dangerous, even in this ultra-modern era of radio, where the microphones weigh less than 250 pounds. Certainly, I never thought I'd live long enough to see that. And as for what we do on Days Gone By, well, as I mentioned, we try to mix it up. Make it interesting. Each show a little different, but also held together by my point of view, my je ne sais quoi, and my extraordinary fashion sense. And who am I? I hear you ask. Well, open your radio history books to page one, and you'll discover that I'm Dave. Dave Lefkowitz, radio personality, journalist, theater critic, and humorist. And on tonight's show, we have The News Gone By, something we do almost every week on this program as it mixes political humor, goofy puns, odd stories in the news. 
kind of like the Daily Show mixed with Weekend Update, with a dash of Howard Stern, Harry Shearer, and of course, the Teletubbies. So we've got a big news gone by today, a lot of stories to cover, everything from a homicidal teacher to a school pool, from people stuck behind toilets to Virgin Airlines being stuck with a toilet, from the stink of rotting sneakers to the stench of poisoned popcorn, from Stephen Hawking to Britney Spears. Yes, we run the gamut tonight on the news gone by. We'll also have a popular segment we do on the show, The World Weird Web. That's where we look at odd or interesting or helpful websites on the Internet and share them with you, so you can be amazed and amused just as I am. And speaking of websites, don't forget to check out the one for this show, hometown.aol.com forward slash Dave's Gone By. There's a couple of pictures there you might get a kick out of, plus information about the show and lots more. Hometown.aol.com forward slash Dave's Gone By. And completing the program tonight, as we often do, with music. March 22nd is one of those weird days, two days after the beginning of spring, big holidays just around the bend, and I guess lots of people making love approximately nine months earlier. Somehow in mid-June, couples are planning to pop out a visitor in early springtime, because there's a preponderance of famous birthdays, well-known people born on March 22nd. Now, of course, with thousands of years of human history, there's bunches of famous people born every day, but this one's almost spooky in the number of folks at the very tops of their professions. Louis L'Amour was born today, 97 years ago, king of the Western novel, a name so brand-identified as like Franklin W. Dixon, who wrote the Hardy Boys novels, or at least at first. Now the name goes on the cover, even though the original authors bearing those names are long gone. But the original, Louis Dearborn L'Amour, and it was L-A-M-O-O-R, how he first spelled it. He was born March 22, 1908, in Jamestown, North Dakota. And speaking of novelists who don't necessarily write every book that has their name on it, William Shatner. There's a legend for you. 74 years old today, captain of the Starship Enterprise, pioneer of declamatory acting in a style that only people with emphysema truly understand. No, but Shatner is the dude. And I'm not even a Star Trek fan, but if you've ever heard cuts from his 1960s rock album, the one he's finally owned up to, lived down, and has made him a bigger legend and icon and millionaire than even his books and TV shows, well, you understand why Shaft may be the man, but Shatner is the man. Picture yourself. In a boat, on a river, with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly. A girl with kaleidoscope eyes. Cellophane flowers of yellow and green towering over your head. Look for the girl. With a sun in her eyes, and she's gone. Lucy in the sky with Donald. Lucy in the sky with Donald. 
thousand where rocking horse people eat marshmallow pies. Everyone smiles as you drift past the flowers that grow so incredibly high. Newspaper taxis appear on the shore, waiting to take you away. Climb in the back with your head in the clouds, and you go! From the Golden Throats collection, William Shatner on LSD, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, that is, wishing him a happy 74th birthday on Dave's Gone By, and then two other major entertainment figures who are supposed to be funny, Marcel Marceau, if not the greatest mime figure in modern history, certainly the most famous. I've seen him two or three times over the years, and he is special, he is fascinating. He tends to go on too long, probably from a desire to give as much as he can to audiences who probably don't see any other mime at all until they see him again. And you can hate mimes and make jokes about them. It's a specialized art, but no question, Marceau is a special artist, 82 years old today. And we have just a little selection of Marceau that I'd like to play for you. This is called Losing an Ice Cream Cone in the Wind. Here's Marcel Marceau. <laughs> oh, my God, my God, he is brilliant, I tell you. Oh, Marcel Marceau, they're genius at mine. Actually, he beat me to this joke 40 years ago. He actually released a record album called The Best of Marcel Marceau, and it was two sides of absolute silence. And it was a big hit. I don't think it sold nearly as many copies as his other album, Marcel Marceau Speaks, on the uh, Caveman Spoken Word record label, where he seriously talks about the origins and techniques of mine. But anyway, happy 82nd birthday, going strong to Marcel Marceau. And to one other funny man, Leonard Marks, who liked to play piano, play pinochle, and play with the ladies, or chicks, leading to his world-famous nickname, Chico. Chico was the first Marx brother to leave us. His lifestyle was just a little too rough for old age, and he died on October 11, 1961. He was 74, and he would have been 118 today. But he is, of course, ever young for anyone who treasures an antic comic spirit. We'll close this opening segment with a little Chico on the ivories, but stick around to the end of the program because we have two more musical birthdays. We're a coincidence. These two guys were born the same day. So stick around till 8 o'clock for much more of Days Gone By. But first, on your marks, get set, Chico. Oh, Signor Pastrumi, what is the first number? Number
1240 WGBB Freeport and AM 1240 WGBB.com. Time for a recurring segment that I have a lot of fun with. It's called The World Weird Web. It's where we look at unusual or helpful or goofy or fun websites and share them with you, my savvy net-surfing audiences. Tonight, we go a little yiddle and begin with something very cool. Giving a shout-out to 24th Street Books to mark the 100th anniversary of the birth of Dr. Seuss. 24th Street Books has republished The Cat in the Hat in Yiddish. More than 3,000 copies of the Katz de Payats have been sold already, mostly as a novelty since only about 20% of the customers are fluent in Yiddish. In fact, according to the New York Post, only 113,000 New Yorkers in total actually speak the language. My guess is, over the past decade, the number of Yiddish speakers has finally started going up rather than down, thanks to the many members of the Hasidic community who brought Yiddish back into daily parlance. Anyway, if you're interested in the book, the website is www.yiddishcat.com. www.yiddishcat.com. The uh, cost is $15 plus $3 shipping. A little pricey for a children's book, but certainly not for a regular hardcover gift book. And hey, the final price of $18 is rather appropriate for a Jewish item. And you can see a page of the book excerpted on the website. You'll see that the Yiddish version of Cat in the Hat uses the same graphic design as the originals and has English uh, transliteration, not translation, transliteration on the left side and Hebrew lettering on the right. So if you can't read the Hebrew characters, you can sound the words out in English. Still, surprisingly, they don't have an English translation also on the page, which I think would make the most sense, probably because some of the interpretations aren't 100% literal. Judging by the sample page, they've done a tolerable job on the language change, just reading from it. Which really doesn't rhyme or scan, but the next part reads, which reads very well. It rhymes and has the proper cadence. The translator, 30-year-old Zachary Scheulenberger, told the uh, New York Post he actually taught himself Yiddish, and he admits he had to fudge some of the lines to make them rhyme. On another page, two children are shown sitting by the window. In English, the original read, So all we could do to sit, 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 sit. And we did not like it. Not one little bit. In Yiddish, the same passage goes, Zoizich gesessen, stam, 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 stam. Sis uns nicht zum Hatzen, es hot nicht kein Tam. This is a very well thought out review of the Katz de Payats linked to the Yiddish Cat website. It's a positive review and makes note that when Seuss came up with the original story, he was responding to a challenge to write a fun and interesting children's tale using only the smallest, easiest, and most recognizable words in the English language. Cat in the Hat was meant to be as much an educational language primer as anything else, 
Of course, the Yiddish version functions that way too. And the critic points out that the subtext here is even stronger. People buying the book aren't reading to find out what happens or understand the story's content. They already know it. Here, the idea is to, quote, recapture something ineffable and lost and to infuse it into our present, unquote. Now, of course, this is not the first time Dr. Seuss has been translated into another language. My guess is Yiddish is one of the last languages, apart maybe from Sanskrit or Tagalog, to be Seussified. And it's long, been, uh, long since been available in Hebrew. If you go to the website milechai.com, get milechai, M-I-L-E-C-H-I.com, you can see the Hebrew version of the book, which doesn't bother to rhyme, but also maintains the Dr. Seuss drawings. I admit it's rather odd to see green eggs and ham available in Hebrew. must not be in the Orthodox section. I figure they at least change it to green eggs and lean pastrami, but they also have the Lorax, Fidwick, the Big-Hearted Moose, and Bartholomew and the Ublek. Only here, probably unintentionally, they've spelled it Bartholomew and the Ublech. I guess someone wanted to Jewishize the nonsense words, which is kind of neat. The Milchai website even has a bunch of Bugs Bunny books in Hebrew, including the Aladdin tale Bugs Bunny Umenorat HaKesem, the magic lamp, and Bugs Bunny Vehashed Hamiflatsi Mi Tasmania, <laughs> Bugs Bunny and the Tasmanian Devil. There are also curious George books and little bear books and a bunch of classics from Shel Silverstein, all with the recognizable designs, all in Hebrew. I think it's going to be a long, long time before we see the Harry Potter series translated into Yiddish, but The Cat in the Hat seems like it's going to be a breakout hit, especially with all the publicity it's getting, so I wouldn't be surprised to see maybe Horton Hears a Who getting similar treatment in a year or two. I mean, what could be more metaphorical for Jews than an elephant who sits and waits and waits and waits patiently for a promise to be kept or a miracle to occur? But anyway, Passover is coming up, so if you're looking for cool gifts, you could do voice than checking out www.yiddishcat.com or milechai.com. If you're in the market for Yiddish books, these websites are fun, so give them a look. From Seuss to Bugs Bunny, whatever you want, just make sure you read them from backwards to front. Teach Yiddish and Hebrew to Yara, son, and daughter. You don't have to be Jewish, but you really ought to. So browse Yiddish Cat and give it a try. And when you're all done, go surfing mile high. Consult with your cantor and check with your reb and tell him you heard it on the World Weird Web. Now don't go away. You don't want to miss the rest of the show. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Dave's Gone By on AM 1240 WGBB Freeport and AM 1240 WGBB.com on this Monday, March 22nd, 2004. It's time for the News Gone By, a look at events of the past week from a septuagenarius perspective. In crime news, police are continuing their inquiry into the death of federal prosecutor Jonathan Luna four months ago. Now, do you think forensic pathologists are getting lazy or just overcautious? There's a $100,000 reward out for information on Luna's death, and investigators are trying to put together a timeline 
of his last whereabouts. All well and good, except for the fact that prosecutors won't rule out suicide as a possible cause of death. Jonathan Luna was stabbed 36 times and dumped in a Pennsylvania stream. Let's say, for the sake of argument, that Luna was in a really bad mood. So he stabbed himself, oh, three or four times in each leg, twice in the arms, maybe once in the belly, and a couple in the ass. That still leaves two dozen more stab wounds unaccounted for. And then, after lancing himself, this federal prosecutor, who, by the way, was from Baltimore, made his way to Pennsylvania without anybody noticing a man walking around with 36 fatal stab wounds to his body, and then he threw himself into the river. Now, I tried calling the Pennsylvania Medical Examiner's Office for a comment, but uh, they were out for the day. Apparently, they were at a university lecturing on the O.J. Simpson case and demonstrating clearly and unmistakably how Nicole Brown Simpson chopped her own head off. Who says there's no such thing as a small family business anymore? The Gaines family of Guilford, Vermont, owns 200 acres of land. And on it, they run a dairy farm with 65 cows, an alfalfa patch, and a maple sugar operation. But times remain tough for farmers, so the Gameses needed a secondary income to stay afloat and, quite literally, save the farm. So they're renting some of their farmland to a neighboring family with a very different business, this one called Vermont Blessings. Now, on the same acreage as the Gaines Dairy, a few acres back from the barns and silos is a human crematorium. Jackie Gaines told the Associated Press, quote, The town was concerned with the aesthetic part of a crematory and how that would fit in. I told them it would generate some income for us, which would enable us to continue to keep this land as a farm for the next generation, unquote. The town seems to be taking the presence of a crematory in a creamery in stride, although some visitors are a little grossed out by the advertising campaign for Vermont Blessings. It's a picture of an 80-year-old man churning butter and saying, coffee, tea, or me. You know, it kind of bothers me the way Jason Blair keeps popping up on all these interview shows and is getting all these book and magazine offers. Blair, of course, is the New York Times writer who fabricated and plagiarized his way to the top, an offense to journalism as contemptible as Martha Stewart's is to investment banking. But instead of vilification, Blair gets validation. Instead of jail time at Sing Sing, he gets face time on Larry King. However, there are levels of crime and corruption, as bad as Blair is. I'm even more nonplussed by the University of Manchester's decision to hire Paul Adutter as a teacher. Adutter served seven years of a 12-year prison sentence for attempting to murder his wife. He had laced her gin and tonic with deadly nightshade. Not only that, to cover his tracks, he spiked beverages at a local Safeway supermarket. Not the normal community outreach background one would expect a college to look for on a curriculum vitae, but the University of Manchester actually sees Mr. Agutter's life experience as a plus. They must have, because they've hired him to lecture students on ethics. Asked about the seemingly paradoxical choice, an ethicist at another college told Reuters, quote, normally people who get into moral philosophy 
do so because they care about making the world a better place. But I can't see any logical contradiction between being able to think about ethical questions and being able to do rather criminal acts, unquote. In related news, the University of Manchester has also hired George Bush to lecture on preserving the environment, Kenneth Lay to teach advanced accounting, and American Idol's Bill Hung to lead the Glee Club. Speaking of colleges, New York University, my alma mater, may not be Ivy League, and they may behave like sons of bitches when it comes to real estate, but you can't beat the kids for creativity. Oh, sure, Midwestern universities have cow-tipping and gang rapes, but NYU kids know how to have real fun. Now, there's a swimming pool inside the Coles Sports Center. Students can use it. Even alumni can use it for an annual fee. But, you know, it was a very cold and miserable winter. And walking from your dorm room all the way two or three blocks to Mercer Street is just too much of a hassle. Or at least it was for Jenny Maurer and Lauren Burge, freshmen in the General Studies program. Freshmen, for God's sakes. NYU is just getting the best and the brightest. Anyway, Jenny and Lauren are dorm mates at University Residence Hall. They cleared out their furniture and brought in a 10-foot by 6-foot blue plastic pool, which they filled by connecting a garden hose to the sink. They held three pool parties right there in their dorm room, warning visitors not to tell their secret and also, quote, no spitting. Alas, all eccentric innovators eventually meet their waterloo, or in this case their water lounge, at their third party, some anonymous dork took pictures and then squealed. The university has since removed the pool and put the co-eds on probation, ironically enough, not for the exotic aquatics, but for having alcohol at the parties. And amazingly enough, despite draining 600 gallons of hot water from the university's pumps, the pool parties didn't come to the college's attention until the squealer. And weirdly enough, there was a hot water shortage in the dorm at the time, but that was blamed on a faulty pipe and had nothing to do with the dorm room lagoon. One partygoer said he was sorry to see the pool go, saying that, quote, the feeling inside the pool was nothing short of euphoric. For her part, Lauren Burge told the school paper, quote, we just wanted to bring joy, unquote. Well, it certainly brought joy to me as an outside observer and former student. It's not only an audacious stunt, wild stunt, but it made people happy. It gave them a break from the winter blues. Granted, if I were landlord of the building, I'd be having a conniption. The damage, if there was a leak or if someone got drunk and drowned, well, it would be a different story. But no one did. So kudos also to the university for not throwing the book at these two party poolers. Although I do wonder if this will spur similar infractions at other colleges. Personally, I don't mind a little fun. But if Hofstra plans a pig roast for their annual handicapped bathroom luau, count me out. In sports news, of sorts, congratulations to 10-year-old Deegan Goodman of Montpelier, Vermont. Last weekend, Deegan won the Golden Sneaker Award the grand prize in a contest that's been held annually in Montpelier since 1975. The winner, get this, the winner, is the person with the stinkiest, most disgustingly smelly footwear. 
Fagan barely beat out 11-year-old James Melton of Phoenix, Arizona, who told the Associated Press, quote, I do BMX, so the dirt and sweat combined make my sneakers really stinky, unquote. 29 years ago, a local shoe store owner started the competition to drum up business. A few years later, Odor Eaters signed on as the official sponsor, giving the winner a gift pack of odor eaten products, as well as a $500 savings bond and another 100 bucks to buy a new pair of sneakers. The event is moderated by Sergeant Odor Eaters, I swear to God, who puts the contestants through a boot camp of aerobic exercises just to get their feet all sweaty and cinched up. One judge this year, his fifth straight year, was a former smell tester for missions on the NASA space shuttle. And you thought the astronaut in terms of endearment went to seed. No, but this guy's a great sport and told AP, quote, the stench sometimes stays with me for days. It's like a flashback. As for the champion, Egan Goodman, as flashbulbs popped and onlookers gaped in awe and judges swayed with nausea, he explained his winning secret. Quote, I just wear them, sweat in them, play sports. I just try. Unquote. Four judges made the final decision, and smell alone is not the only criteria, by the way. Overall condition of the sneakers also counts, as do the heels and soles. Now, this seems a little suspicious to me, though. I mean, how can the judges do a proper visual inspection when it takes half an hour for their eyes to uncross? Here's a story from the Weird But True column in the New York Post. I'll just read this one verbatim. It took bolt cutters and a sledgehammer to free an 83-year-old woman after she somehow became wedged behind her toilet and was stuck there for two days. Oh dear, what can the matter be? Fire Chief Bob Wright told the Winnipeg Sun, quote, her whole body became jammed behind her toilet somehow. It was one of those strange occurrences you wouldn't have believed even if you had a camera and had taken the picture, unquote. You know, that's really not a picture I want to see, come to think of it, but eventually the fire department had to smash the porcelain bowl to free her. The beauty part is, the woman told paramedics she wasn't certain how she became stuck there. I'm sorry, I find that a little hard to believe. Gee, officer, one minute I was sitting in my chair watching Dr. Phil, the next thing I knew, I was pinned behind the crapper. It's like magic. Anyway, the woman had sore ribs and was a little disoriented, but she's expected to make a full recovery. The weird part is that she was dehydrated. Now, I can understand her being exhausted, bruised, hungry, but thirst should not have been a problem. Even if she'd gone potty before getting wedged in, I mean, you know, just reach for the handle and flush. I'd love to know the whole story behind the story. Somehow, I don't think this woman is being completely truthful, especially since the fire chief noticed big red lines running across her forehead. She declined to comment, but a neighbor said, oh yeah, those were from last year when she got her face stuck in the toaster. In further bathroom news, Virgin Atlantic Airways has canceled plans for a specially designed urinal. Oh, it was going to be on view and in use at the Executive Clubhouse in Kennedy Airport. Did you see this thing in the papers? You're forgiven if you skipped over the story thinking it was about another Rolling Stones tour. The urinal 
was shaped like a woman's mouth, with big red lips and white teeth open wide to receive, well, whatever was going in. There's a picture of it on my website, hometown.aol.com forward slash Dave's Gone By. Just scroll down towards the bottom of the page below the charming photos of Stephen Sondheim and Andrew Lloyd Webber, hometown.aol.com forward slash Dave's Gone By. Anyway, John Reardon, Vice President of Customer Services, said about the Kisses urinal, quote, in anything that we do, there has to be a smile. And that's the smile in this clubhouse, unquote. Well, the National Organization for Women was not smiling. In fact, they were set to hold a press conference on the same day Virgin was to debut the bowl. City Chapter President Rita Haley was ready to denounce the Jane Light John as being, quote, degrading and humiliating to women, blah, blah, blah. Virgin quickly got the hint and scrapped the crapper, with the Vice President saying, quote, Everyone was very sorry to hear of the people's concerns about the design of the Kisses urinals. No offense was ever intended, unquote. He even added that the naughty toities were created by a female designer. When now President Rita Haley heard that, her jaw dropped, at which point six men crowded around and tried to pee in it. No, but you have to wonder at the lack of sensitivity on the part of Virgin Airlines. I mean, granted, since the toilets were going only into the men's bathroom, it's unlikely women would ever see it if it hadn't hit the papers. And I think most guys have gone to public bathrooms in nice restaurants and have been surprised at some of the body artwork there. I'm not talking about graffiti. I'm talking about framed posters or paintings of naked women, stuff you wouldn't expect considering the tone of the rest of the establishment. But as one Queen's councilman said when he heard about the controversy, I'm paraphrasing this, but he said, these men think it's all meant in good fun? Okay, then I guess they wouldn't mind having their faces being on a urinal. After all, it's harmless, doesn't mean anything. The guy has a point. I mean, after all, it's only a rumor. But I've heard that President Bush and all his cabinet members have specially constructed toilets shaped just like America. Oh, and as long as we're on an excretory subject, here's a riddle. Why is diarrhea like a tourist hotel in Baghdad? Because when it explodes, it dislodges foreign bodies into a worthless brown mass. Hey, it's not Henny Youngman, but when was he political? In war news, well, we've all heard jokes about lonely Arabs and their camels, but this ain't a joke, and it wasn't a camel. A frustrated Afghan soldier who could not afford to get married, was detained last week for turning to the next best thing. He was caught having sex with a donkey. The unidentified soldier was spotted by a young boy as he was humping the animal in an abandoned house. Now, under Taliban rule, bestiality was punishable by death, but this guy was released without charges, I guess because police sympathized with him. It's Afghan custom that men pay at least $3,000 to parents of prospective brides as a kind of dowry. But the average annual income for an Afghani guy is just a couple of hundred bucks. So this poor fellow figured he'd never make enough to get a girl, but the dowry for a donkey is just fifty nine ninety five, so he was home free. No, but the man was, of course, embarrassed about being caught with his robe down, asked why he chose a donkey rather than a sheep or another work animal. The man said, okay, now you know where this punchline is going. 
And I know you know where this punchline's going, and you know I know you know where this punchline is going, and the FCC knows we both know where this punchline's going, so why don't you just make your own punchline, say it to yourself, and save me a $27,000 fine, okay? And uh, don't worry if the joke isn't witty or subtle. It's fine, because if it's the most vulgar and obvious, you know, he likes it in the ass, that whole genre, because that is exactly where I was going. But now I don't have to, because you, yes, you, my audience, are so good. So, have you got the joke yet? Have you giggled and sniggered and gone through every permutation of the word ass to fit your exact humor specifications? Or maybe you're thinking outside the box a little and came up with something about donkey punching or a cleaner joke about the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Either way, let that one-liner fly. Give it to God. Let her rip. And just because I trust you to come up with the best, worst jokes imaginable, I'm making you the author and creator of this week's Bad Pun of the Week. Yes, 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 the comedy bell rings for thee because you have just made the days gone by Bad Pun of the Week. Every week on this program, we make a play on words so asinine, so beastly, we put jewels and binoculars on its head and ride it out to the middle of the news gone by. And now, having come up with your own Bad Pun of the Week... Why not go the whole hog, or mule, and sponsor the Bad Pun of the Week next week and every week? So many people are listening to this show, not just on Long Island, but in Manhattan, California, Wisconsin, thanks to the Internet. There are thousands upon thousands of people you could reach with your commercial message just by advertising on this program. The Tondor Grill knows it. Hewlett Minuteman Press knows it. Performing Arts Insider knows it. Isn't it time you knew it, too? Do you perform a valuable service or fix things or build things? Do you have a store that could use some more e-commerce or walk-in traffic? Are you putting on a concert or a play or organizing a tour or pursuing a career as a guest speaker or a party DJ? Whatever you want to tell the world that you do, this show is here to help you. Because advertising on Dave's Gone By is easy, fun, cost-effective, and just plain effective. So call Dave's Gone By at 516-295-1511 and ask about purchasing a 30- or 60-second ad or sponsoring a segment of the program. 516-295-1511 is the number. Or email davesgoneby at aol.com and ask for the rate card and how we can tailor an advertisement to fit your needs, your budget, your business. Area code 516-295-1511 or email davesgoneby at aol.com. Be part of the show. Support the show. From the music to the talk to the sketches to the bad pun of the week. Don't be good. Be ponderful. Welcome back to the Dave's Gone By News Gone By. You know, one of the segments that I sometimes do is frivolous lawsuit time. As the title suggests, it's about legal actions that have more to do with greed than merit. From that woman who tried suing CBS over Janet Jackson's nipple, to the dits who sued McDonald's and won over that hot cup of coffee she spilled on her own lap. But not all lawsuits are laughable. So congratulations to Eric Peoples of Jasper, Missouri. He was awarded $20 million for a lung condition, he says and the government study confirmed 
came from working at a popcorn flavoring plant. The horror is that Peoples is only 32 years old and worked for the plant for less than two years. And he, yet, he already needs a double lung transplant, and there's 29 other people also suing International Flavors and Fragrances for the same condition. International Flavors and Fragrances, by the way, is exactly what it says. When you look at a box of cookies or cereal or popcorn on the shelf, and you see that it boasts natural or artificial flavors, chances are it was made by IFF. The company assures people that on a small scale, just inhaling fumes from a normal bag of popcorn is completely harmless. Still, IFF will change the chemicals used to make its butter flavor and butter light flavoring to a different substance called I Can't Believe It's Not Lung Cancer. Kind of a sad, creepy story from the science world. Police are questioning Stephen, Stephen Hawking, the shrimp-like astrophysicist best known for writing A Brief History of Time. His family is worried about him because he's been evidencing lots of unexplained injuries, like a broken wrist, gashes to his face, and a busted lip. Since Hawking is unable to do these things to himself, suspicion has fallen on his caregivers, who might be abusive. One Jamaican nurse did admit to smacking Hawking. Apparently, he told her he was fascinated by black holes, and she mistook that for a proposition. In entertainment news last week, Britney Spears decided not to have a scene in her new video in which she commits suicide. A treatment for the video has the pop tartlet being hounded by paparazzi. Then she and her on-screen boyfriend escape to a hotel, but have a drunken, pill-popping fight, after which she drowns herself in a bathtub. But Spears feared such a sequence would glorify or even endorse suicide which would be career suicide, considering parents already fear her influence on society. After all, three months ago, Britney got married, and just two days later it was annulled. Since then, hundreds of couples in upstate New York have had the very same experience. Now, ordinarily on this program, I write my own jokes, but sometimes a one-liner comes along from someone else, and I would be remiss if I didn't share it with you. So, with that in mind, here's news about Mel Gibson, who's fresh off the quarter-billion-dollar box office windfall of The Passion of the Christ. The actor-director said in a radio interview that he's hoping to make another biblical movie, this one about Hanukkah. That's the holiday where a small Jewish family fought to take the Holy Temple back from the Syrians. Gibson said, quote, The Maccabee family stood up and made war. They stuck by their guns, and they came out winning. It's like a Western, unquote. Now, considering the controversy over the Passion, the Jewish community could see a Hanukkah movie as being an olive branch from Gibson over the whole anti-Semitism thing. But Abraham Foxman is not buying it. He's the head of the Anti-Defamation League. Asked if he'd want to see a Mel Gibson movie about the Maccabees, Foxman said, quote, Thanks, but no thanks. The last thing we need in Jewish history is to, to convert it into a Western. And he added, quote, Besides, in Gibson's hands, we may wind up losing. Speaking of Jesus and suicide, first there's Britney Spears, worried about putting a death scene in her next video. And remember how Judas Priest and Twisted Sister and Marilyn Manson got taken to task by conservatives and Christians for their macabre song lyrics and sick themes and suicidal imagery. 
Everyone was so afraid that they influenced people to worship Satan and kill themselves and turn vegetarian. But nobody's saying a word against Mel Gibson and his movie. Oh, I know the critics and the Jews and media have debated the film ad nauseum, the vast majority calling it a flawed but powerful work of art. But the right-wingers, they're defending it to the skies, even though it has already caused one actual death and one suicide attempt. The death was just a woman who had a heart attack watching the film a couple of weeks ago, but the suicide attempt is amazing. In a horrific bid to recreate the crucifixion, a delusional man who apparently believed he was Jesus Christ built a wooden cross and tried to nail his hands to it. Asked if he'd recently seen Mel Gibson's movie, the 23-year-old man said he had not, but he had been seeing, quote, pictures of God on the computer. The man, whom police would not identify, hailed from Heartland, Maine. The incident started when he took two pieces of wood and nailed them together in the shape of a cross. Then he laid the giant crucifix down on his living room floor. He then tacked a sign on it, reading, Suicide, tacked it to the wood. Now here's the beauty part. Here's the part that makes this one of the most magnificent acts of stupidity in the history of mankind. The guy laid down on the cross on the wood, and he took a three-and-a-half-inch spike and proceeded to nail one of his hands to the cross. But as he gushed blood, he faced a dilemma. With only one hand free, he couldn't nail his other hand to the board. When he realized he had this rather insurmountable problem, he dialed 911 somehow, now, the topper on the story is that the police lieutenant told the press it was unclear whether the man was seeking assistance for his injury or just looking for help in nailing down his other hand. <laughs> just in case you were wondering, rescuers saw it off the wood while it was still attached to the guy and then pried out the spike. It was a pretty repulsive scene, mainly because the guy was distraught and crying, which made things worse because every time he put his face in his hands, his nose got stuck. Thank goodness not all eccentrics are so scary. Some are pretty wonderful. Take, for example, Mike Carmichael, a commercial painter living in Alexandria, Indiana. Hanging in a shed in Mike Carmichael's backyard is a baseball. Just an ordinary baseball, not from any World Series or legendary game. But this baseball is special because for the past 27 years, Carmichael has been painting it. Or, should I say, painting over it again and again and again, one layer of paint on top of another. The baseball now weighs 1,300 pounds, spans 35 inches in diameter, runs nearly 10 feet around, and contains more than 18,000 layers of paint. Last Saturday, a crew from the Guinness Book of World Records took a core sample from the ball to make sure it measures up, and the sweet part of the story is not just the joy of eccentricity. But when the community understands its psychological purpose in an absurd universe and revels in it, as such, Alexandria, Virginia, declared last Saturday, Ball of Paint Day. I'm not making this up. According to the Associated Press, the day began with a proclamation honoring Mike Carmichael on the steps of City Hall, followed by a photo exhibition of the um, artist, capped with the Guinness people taking their sample. And yes, 
I probably should have made this a World Weird Web segment because there is a website, www.ballofpaint.com. It's very fun, and there's even a four-minute film about the town and its delight in this ridiculous project, which they hope will become a roadside attraction. And the topper, remember I told you last week about setup, punchline, and topper? Well, the topper is that this very small town, population 6,000, has nothing going on, nothing else to make it stand out except its previous eccentric activity. When some of the locals dug out a blockage in the sewer system and discovered what is presumed to be one of the world's largest hairballs. No, I am not kidding. Check the website, ballofpaint.com, whose motto is, quote, the inspirational story of one small town with a huge set of balls, unquote. The only negative part is the town adjoining Alexandria is currently working on painting the world's largest bat, a project being paid for by the Indiana Glass and Window Makers Union. In television news, just when you started liking Donald Trump, just when you thought there might be more to this shag-haired, melon-faced goon than his father's money, he does something to remind us that next to the word hubris in the dictionary, is his picture, probably with the word Trump emblazoned over it in gold. Reuters reports that Donald is trying to trademark the phrase, you're fired. Granted, he's made it a popular catchphrase, thanks to his hit reality show, The Apprentice. But still, if he gets the trademark, that would be the best news the Bush administration could possibly receive about the economy. Think about it. If Donald Trump is the only person in America allowed to say, you're fired, Every worker in every other company is home free. Forget wrongful termination lawsuits. All that this misemployee has to do is call Trump's lawyers, and he could put the boss who fired him out of business for violating copyright. Actually, none of that is true. Trump would just be getting permission to use that phrase connected with his image and brand identity. But he wouldn't have a monopoly on the words themselves. His girlfriend would, however, gain exclusive rights, both moral and legal, to the phrase, I'm with stupid. And finally, sad news from the world of music. Video killed the radio star. Had to happen eventually. If you think about it, it's amazing that it took more than 20 years, but MTV lost one of its VJs last week, one of its very first original VJs, J.J. Jackson died at the age of 62 on St. Patrick's Day. He was driving home from dinner in Los Angeles and had a heart attack. And it's not like J.J. was my favorite V.J. or anything. I think most guys my age basically tolerated the videos, but we were really waiting for Martha Quinn. But J.J. was a class act. Not quite hip, but not a jackass either. After five years at MTV, Jackson went back to radio, first with a syndicated show, and then with an afternoon slot on a station in L.A., Because once you get radio in your blood, I'm learning that. You can do TV, you can do other things, but if you feel that connection with radio, you never give it up. And uh, I guess this is just another piece of lost youth, like not one but two Beatles dying, or Mr. Rogers, or Jerry Garcia, or Graham Chapman, or the Fantastics closing, or my elementary school closing, and my junior high school getting knocked down. All these signposts along the way to your own mortality, toward the ultimate erasure. Not trying to get morbid or depressed or anything. It's no biggie. It's not like I'll never watch another video again. Well, that depends. If you've seen MTV lately, they all suck. 
but that could just be another sign of advancing years from this 40-year-old. So before I crawl off to my own Robert Palmer video in the sky, I just want to say farewell, JJ. Thanks for being one of the astronauts. Thanks for not being smarmy or glib or setting the wrong tone. And most of all, thanks for all the intros. And that's the news gone by for March 22nd, 2004. Please send your comments, opinions, and your fired t-shirts to P.O. Box 62, Hewlett, New York, 11557-0062. Dave's gone by. Box 62, Hewlett, New York, 11557-0062. Or email us at davesgoneby at AOL.com. And if you want to hear older versions of the news gone by, remember that they're now available on CD. You can find out more about that by visiting the website, hometown.aol.com forward slash Dave's Gone By. Remember also that we reserve the right to read your letters or emails on the air, name withheld upon request. So send cards, send gifts, but please, no mouth-shaped urinals. That's just in bad taste. Back after this. These are the Daves, my friend, the perfect radio blend of comedy, talk, radio, and more. Yes, these are the Daves. More than 60 complete episodes of Daves Gone By, all on compact disc for your listening pleasure. Got a long drive home? Pop in a Dave. In the mood for a funny sketch or a fun interview? Pop in a Dave. All CDs come in jewel cases with covers and photos and track listings, just $14 per CD, and that includes shipping and handling. Throw in another dollar, and I'll personally autograph the cover. If you're not sure which show to pick, just visit the Dave's Gone By website or email davesgoneby at aol.com and ask for the CD list. Audio cassettes are available, too, so start your collection today. These are the Daves, my friend. Makes a great gift to send. Give them a try. If you love Daves, go by. Are you working on something new? No. That is not like you, George. I have nothing to say. You have many things. Well, nothing that's not been said. Said by you. I do not know where to go. And nor did I. I want to make things that count. Things that I did what I had to do. What am I to do? Something of my own. 
Music from two people who taught the American musical How to Dream, Andrew Lloyd Webber and uh, Stephen Sondheim, both birthday boys today, March 22nd. Andrew Lloyd Webber turns 56, and Stephen Sondheim is 74. Oh, no, no, actually, add a year to both of those. Got that wrong. It's Webber 57, Sondheim 75, but that's only in halftime. Um, but uh, what we heard was As If We Never Said Goodbye, probably the best-known and, and loveliest song from Sunset Boulevard, which was uh, Weber's last real big hit, and even that wasn't quite the hit people thought it would be. I, I thought it was a pretty good show, and um, Glenn Close doing the vocal there as Norma Desmond, of course, that, uh, based on the famous film. Opening this segment from Sunday in the Park with George, one of the great, great masterpieces of musical theater. Mandy Patinkin and Bernadette Peters doing the honors there. Mandy going a little bit over the top, as he always does, but it's still incredible stuff. That was Move On from late in the second act when Dot returns. If if you want to hear truly one of the greatest experiences in musical theater, just listen to the first act of Sunday in the Park. Second, the book got a little weird, but um, either way, these these are the two... Two of the giants, not all, but um, I wanted to also play two love songs. Those were two goodbye songs that we heard, um, contrasting the way they do things. And unfortunately, I don't have the time, um, because Sondheim is basically known for ambivalence and his dark side, contrasting also with the light side and his famous wordplay. Weber, in his musicals, which include Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and Jesus Christ Superstar, and Evita, and Phantom, and, and By Jeeves, and of course Sunset, and Whistle Down the Wind, he wants to tell a big story in a big way. He wants to go for big emotions. It isn't just spectacle, but um, he's, he's much more in the big showcasing of everything, and, and in an older sort of style, and Sondheim has blazed so many new trails. It's not fair to compare them. Sondheim will pretty much always win. Uh, That's just the way it is. But if you take them each on their own terms, they both contributed 
an enormous amount to our musical art heritage. Anyway, before we hear two more selections, one from each, to round out this 70th episode of Dave's Gone By, I have to leave time for thank yous and reminders, and the list of that just keeps growing. I couldn't be more grateful for that. First of all, thank you to Minuteman Press of Hewlett. They do printing, they do photocopies, they do business cards and wedding invitations and stationery and gifts. Now, the list of the stuff they do is a page long, and it's in five columns on the page in small letters. So, it really is pretty staggering. Uh, If you want it done, Minuteman Press of Hewlett can do it. 1315 Broadway in Hewlett on the South Shore. 516-569-5577 is the number. It's a family-owned business for 30 years, and they do professional work at excellent prices. 516-569-5575. Also want to thank our sponsor, the Tondor Grill. 222 Sunrise Highway in Rockville Center. See their menu at tondorgrill.com. Remember, it's not tandoori. It's Tandoor. Leave off the last I for Indialicious. And some thank yous to people at this radio station who also have radio shows. Bonnie D. Graham, who hosts Long Island's Dating every Friday at 6 p.m. And also the comic book novice. If you're into comics and graphic art, everything from Archie to manga... Thursdays, 9 p.m., the time for you, comic book novice. And also, as always, want to thank engineer Joe Salzone. Joe's main show, Your World with Joe Salzone, can be heard Sunday nights at 7 p.m. He's also on with a different, more free-form show, Sunday and Monday nights at 11. And he even has a little baby show Monday nights at 6, just before Dave's Gong By goes on. And uh, you can also catch his show on television, Long Island Cablevision, Channel 20, Sundays at 1. Now, that time is going to change, unfortunately, in April. So, catch it now, especially since I've, I've they've been repeating the show that I've been on of his about 20 times on Sunday afternoons. And then there was another one that they showed once that I was on, and they haven't again yet. But it's definitely worth tuning in, dare I say, even if I'm not on it. Sundays, 1 p.m., Channel 20 on Long Island Cablevision. Uh, also want to wish a happy 42nd anniversary to my mom and dad. Yes, I'm 40, 42 years, of, uh, it was kosher, do the math. And uh, want to wish love and you know, joy and everything good to my wonderful, beautiful, terrific wife. Our anniversary is coming up next week, March 29th, so uh, I think I'm going to mark that occasion on the show as well. Please send your comments and opinions about this show to Dave's Gone By, Box 62, Hewlett, New York, 11557-0062, or email davesgoneby at aol.com. So also check the website, hometown.aol.com forward slash Dave's Gone By to see about merchandise and advertising information, etc., etc., and so forth. Stop 
the chills and all the weeping. Make it clear and strong, so the whole night long, every signal that you send until the very end, I will not abandon you, my precious friend. Don't try and stem the tide. Then you'll raise a banner, send a flare up in the sky. Try to burn a torch and try to build a bonfire. Every signal that you send until the very I have always been right there. Title song from Andrew Lloyd Webber and Jim Steinman's Whistle Down the Wind. Never quite made it to Broadway, but it's a nice little song, and it's unfortunately time for me to go whistling down the windy Long Island Railroad. We're going to close with one more Sondheim song, the extraordinary and beautiful Being Alive, from one of his many masterpieces, Company. But this is a little special. It's not the Dean Jones version that we all know pretty well, which is non pareil. This is the Larry Kurt version, which is pretty good, too. Anyway, I'll be back next week, March 29th, for the 71st episode of Dave's Gone By. Until then, don't miss your days going by. This is Dave Lefkowitz. Good night, friends, and may you always have a zig in your zag. And gone by. Someone to hold you too close. Someone to hurt you too deep. Someone to sit in your chair to ruin your sleep. That's true, but there's more than that. Is that all you think there is to it? You've got so many reasons for not being with someone, but Robert, you haven't one good reason for being alone. Come on, you're onto something, Bobby. You're onto something. Someone to need you too much. Someone to know you too well. Someone to pull you up short, to put you through hell. You see what you look for, you know. You're not a kid anymore, Robbie. I don't think you'll ever be a kid again, kiddo. Hey, buddy, don't be afraid that it won't be perfect. The only thing to be afraid of really is that it won't be. Don't stop now. Keep going. Someone you have to let in. Someone whose feelings you spare. Someone who, like it or not, will want you to share a little, a lot. What does all that mean? Robert, how do you know so much about it when you've never been there? It's much better living it than looking at it, Robert. Add him up, Bobby. Add him up. Someone to crown you with love. Someone to force you to care. Someone to make you come through. Always be there, as frightened as you of being alive. Being alive. Being alive. Being alive. Being alive.
candles, Robert, and make a wish. Want something. Want something. Somebody hold me too close. Somebody hurt me too deep. Somebody sit in my chair and ruin my sleep and make me aware of being alive, being alive. Somebody need me too much. Somebody know me too well. Somebody pull me up short and put me through hell and give me support for being alive. Make me alive. Make me alive. Make me confused. Mock me with prayer. Frightened as you to help us survive. 